Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, I first met this gentleman, I don't know, a few years ago, in one of Jay Suko's classes because he was a substitute teacher. And this is a, a legend, truly a legend, especially in Missouri. And welcome, my friend, Bill Cott. Hi, Bill. Hello, Margo. How are you? I'm great, especially now that I'm talking with you. You've had an amazing career and a pretty amazing life as well, which we want to talk about today. I, I, As a therapist, I like to talk about your childhood a little bit, where you grew up and what your family was like, how many kids, and where your name came from, because I understand it's actually a Bohemian or Czech name. Yes. So uh, many generations ago... Um, Vensul Katova uh, came over uh, on, on a ship from, uh, you know, at the time it was Bohemia, or a lot of us would know it as the Czech Republic now. Um, and uh, born on the ship coming over. So because it was in international water, because it was in American waters, that that first um, citizen was uh, a naturalized citizen. So he he was he was our 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 family's first anchor baby, and uh, <laughs> we, uh, so my family settled in uh, Missouri, and uh, they were farmers. Several generations of farmers. Um, my grandfather on on the cot side um, grew up on a farm, and then uh, started several different businesses. For himself, and then uh, and then later went to work uh, as a machinist for the rest of his career. But he he had worked as a uh, he was a boxer, a dancer, a machine, uh, um, a uh, um, a watchmaker and jeweler. And then he uh, right right around the time of World War II became a machinist. And then he had a vital industry job, so he was not not um, uh, enlisted in military service. You know, the, the day after Pearl Harbor, he showed up at his job at the plant and there were uh, tanks and, and soldiers and everything surrounding it because now everything that was going out in cans uh, was going to be rations for the for the soldiers overseas or barrels of oil and things like that. So Continental Can was where he worked. And my, my other grandfather uh, worked at Mallinckrodt uh, in St. Louis, but he was a, he was a Marine. So he, he fought, he like, I think that day went and enlisted in the Marines and um, uh, served in Iwo Jima and then later served in the Korean War. Um, and then uh, my dad was the first um, first uh, person in his family to uh, attend and graduate from college. Wow, great. How yeah. about your mom? Uh, my mom went to college as well. And um, she, that was her side of the family with the, the uh, George Muse, the Marine. And, and that is a somewhat French name. Uh, we... Later found out we're always told that's a German because both of my 
grandparents on my mom's side were were German, and then we found out that um, Muse is more of a, a French name. Uh, so it was French, German, whatever. Um, um, and so my mom was a uh, school teacher <clears throat> for a while and then became a full-time mom, as a lot of moms did back in the late 60s. Um, but, you know, she's always had an educator's heart and um, uh, raised me to be, be a very uh, empathetic person and to care for others. And uh, um, so, yeah, I had a... A very, uh, I think, very, very unusual um, childhood, I think, compared to some others, but also a very, uh, you know, we were talking about um, uh, earlier before we started this interview about, you know, hopefully not traumatic. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it was um, traumatic, really, in, in the sense that, you know, I, I had some friends who've had some, you know, severe trauma in their childhood. Mine was just that we moved very frequently. And of course, that could be traumatic to a child, but it certainly wasn't anything where I ever felt threatened or endangered or uncared for. Um, quite the opposite. We always felt cared for no matter where we went. We were always a, a very tight family unit. Me and my brother and my sister. I have older sister, Mary, younger brother, Tim. And so uh, we would move around an awful lot because my dad wrote uh, industrials, corporate, corporate theater, etc., Hold on just one second. Just tell them I'm not here. I'm not I'm not taking the call, obviously. I'm putting it on mindfulness mode. Well, if it's, you know, Steven Spielberg, go ahead, Bill. Why is it even making a noise? It shouldn't even be making a noise because I put it in mindfulness mode. All right. So um let's, so let's, let's, let's pick it up from where I was talking about. Yeah, because we'll edit this too. No worries. Yeah. So you're the middle child, you got an older sister, Mary. Older sister, Mary, younger brother, Tim, were all separated by three years. And um, we would move out or we moved around a lot as uh, in my youth. Let me say all this all over again, because I've got distracted by somebody walking in front of my apartment and everything. So we moved around a lot when I was a kid because my father wrote industrials, corporate theater. He would oh. write... He would write speeches for the presidents of corporations. He would write slideshows and he would even write complete musical comedies. No. So, yes. What did he that, play? Did, what instrument did he play? Um, he didn't really play. He, he, he could like, he could like plunk things out on a piano, but wow. he would, you know, he would, he would write the lyrics and put it in the hands of professional musicians to then compose it and, oh. and do all that. But he would definitely write the book and all the lyrics. Wow. Um, based on whatever company's theme, like one, one year it was um, the spirit of Timken because they wanted to say, let's, 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 you know, celebrate the spirit of this company. So uh, he came and did a thing <laughs> that was kind of like, um, uh, it's a wonderful life. Oh, that's know? awesome. Um, so, so the spirit was the angel, you know, I'm the Timken spirit, you know. Uh, and then another one that I got to see actually produced uh, at, um, at, a, at the bridge hotel in Boca Raton, Florida. It was their international um, international uh, annual function. And so it, he basically wrote a musical comedy about this company. Uh, and I believe that was Timken still as well, uh, kind of lampooning Americans 
and like, you know, showing everybody, hey, we get it. Here's where we realize that Americans aren't on board with things like the metric system or whatever. He wrote one song where there was it was like a sea shanty sort of a thing where there was a bunch of uh, British soldiers saying, don't walk the planks, boys, the Yanks are still over there. Um, and uh, he, he always he always got high marks for for satire. Uh, in these companies, and really, he would do so much research and really figure out what was what was at the core of this company's culture. How could he lampoon it in a way that that the higher ups felt comfortable with, and yet all of the employees felt heard? And well, that was now, his job. How old were you when you performed in Boca? Uh, I didn't perform. He produced. Oh, okay. He, he produced and wrote it. Uh, the The producer of that show was. Um, was also at the same time the producer of uh, Lena Horne, A Lady in Her Music. Wow, so wow. while he was prepping that show, we were living in Pennsylvania, which is another part of our story that I'll tell you about. Um, he was, um, uh, we, so I got to sit in the producer's office of the Palace Theater when I was in um, seventh grade or eighth grade, I think, because we were living in Pennsylvania and he made a day trip down to 42nd Street to uh, meet with this producer. He was either Clark or Claude, whose name I can't remember, because my mom had gotten, you know, at that point, answering machines were still kind of a new thing. So still people would rush to answer the phone if the person who needed to be reached wasn't there. And my mom, bless her heart, um, you know, she wasn't born to be a receptionist. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> she had many other skill sets, which were much more valuable, but so my dad was working with two different producers at the time, one, one named Clark and one named Claude. Uh, <laughs> and so, so like my mom took the message, got, got, got the first part of the message right, got the phone number, and then couldn't remember whether it was Clark or Claude. So she said, Claw. So, so my dad called up the number and said, hey, can I talk to Claw? <laughs> got to the right person because, you know, whatever number. But... Uh, that was a fun we would always joke around about you know what's the name of the producer claw <laughs> uh, but when we were living in pennsylvania my dad was studying to become um a russian orthodox priest wow um, because wow. when he met my mother he was studying to be a roman catholic priest and uh there was a uh, a large part of our life that was you know in, in addition to traveling around to you know follow my father's career which was contract to contract we were also uh following his, uh his spiritual growth you know my mother was a teacher at a at a catholic school when they met uh he was he was no longer on the path to priesthood but that was where his studying had been and he decided that that wasn't what he wanted and then uh, my parents met and fell in love and my father thought for a while that he might be uh, an episcopalian minister or uh, a Lutheran minister, uh, because you know they have um, they have a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same training, a lot of the same beliefs. You know, right. diverging here and there, but uh, his education would have filled in that same way. And they're also able to be married. Uh, and then um, then he started exploring uh, Orthodox Catholicism, Greek Catholic, Orthodox Catholic, uh, Russian Russian Orthodox, and so uh, so we moved to a seminary and monastery in uh <laughs> northeastern pennsylvania oh my gosh in oh the my goodness nowhere and we were I, we were all singing in the choir uh weekly we would have to go to um 
uh, uh, Vespers on Saturday and and liturgy on Sunday. And Vespers was a series of um, uh, prayers and things like that that would happen half of the half of Saturday evening, and then almost all of Sunday morning was taken up with a, with an Orthodox liturgy. They're really long, and you're standing for almost all of it. You oh know, yes, oh in yes. The Roman Catholic, it's kneeling, sitting, kneeling, sitting, standing, and all that. But Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they spend almost the whole time standing. Especially these holy holidays, like the like Easter's coming up. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, uh, for Easter at an Orthodox church, you like in many many of the faiths, you know, you'll you'll circle around the outside of the church or the block around the church, singing "Christ is risen from the <laughs> dead." By death has he trampled down death. Uh, and uh, these large processions. So it, it was, it's a very liturgical experience. Is that where you got this great singing voice? I, I definitely sang a lot in choir, in school, and in church. Uh, thank you for that compliment. Um, I do love singing. Um, the, the, the best formal training that I got was started in high school. You know, I got a lot of training singing in choir, but I, I first got like, um, like voice training at Rittner High School in St. Louis, Missouri with uh, Alan Byers, who was, um, he really was a very disciplined uh, musician and um, really, really, really um, fought hard to make sure the kids gave their best. And so we had to come in for, for breath training and voice training twice or sometimes three times a week in high school, in addition to our regular choir rehearsals. Um, oh, that's and great. Then, and then later in college, I went to Central Methodist University. And Methodism was one of the faiths that I never was really a part of, but I, I've probably attended as many Methodist services as anything else um, due, due to my time at Central. Um, but I, I, uh, I was in the acapella choir there. Uh, so I got all kinds of extra, you know, training, voice training there. Nancy Jones at the Swinney Conservatory of Music um, and uh, Dr. R. Paul Drummond. So, um, yeah, the early early part of my my teens and early youth, a lot of formal instruction in singing. So that's that's I believe that's where I got all that training. And then uh, uh, that's so that's one of the reasons why I love doing musical improv. Yeah, me too. It really rocks, doesn't it? Yes. I love musical improv. And even though I don't have the greatest voice, I've got a big commitment. <laughs> That's all that matters in musical improv. So many people say like, oh, but I don't, I, I'm not the world's best singer. You don't have to be. Uh -uh. Or like, I don't know how to harmonize. Great. All you have to do is... If you if you sing the exact same note as the other person, that's awesome because that's singing in unison, which hardly ever happens in musical improv. And if you sing a different note, that's what we call an improv harmony. <laughs> exactly. Non-harmonious. Exactly. One of the first things I do when I when I talk with beginning uh, improvisers, I like to pull examples from other places besides improv because improv right. may be brand new to them, but I know they've heard of jazz. Yes. Um, and so my two favorite quotes about about improv apply to both musical improv and any improv and life in general from Miles Davis, one of which is there are no mistakes. And if you go into it with that understanding, everything's going to turn out fine. And the other quote is that the only thing that determines whether you hit the right note or the wrong note is the note that you hit after that note. Yes. Yes. I yes. love that. 
I love that. I, I was trying to teach, well, teaching, you know, kind of an Armando and having people do monologues and talking about, you know, we're just riffing off of the monologue. You know, we're not quoting the monologue or anything like that. And it's an interesting concept. It's a little hard for people to get it that are maybe just starting out. So, but enough about me. We'll talk more about me later. Um, so when you were a kid, when did you first discover you like to make people laugh or entertain people? I mean, how old were you when you... I must have been about five years old. Uh, <laughs> one of the first ways I started uh, performing and entertaining was um, doing impressions. I would do impressions of people I really hadn't heard. I would do impressions of like, I would see Rich Little and uh, and other impressionists do impressions of people like James Cagney uh -huh. and Humphrey Bogart. And I wasn't old enough to have really seen those guys in movies. Maybe I saw them in clips. And so I had an idea of what their voice really sounded like. But I was doing impressions of impressions. Uh, <laughs> and my dad just loved to call me out. We, we'd have guests over for dinner or whatever. He was, Billy, of course, I was Billy until the age of like 11 or 12. Billy, come over here. Do some impressions here. Um, and so I would, I would do impressions. And then later... Uh, because my dad used to do impressions when he was a when he was a kid. Um, oh. uh, he did, you know, um, he did a great Pearl Bailey impression. Of course, that would be considered, you know, uh, appropriation right. uh, nowadays. But his, his singing voice, he could sing um, and sound like Pearl Bailey. And it was like, you got, you got to hear this, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, mine, mine were just like old, you know, cinema classics that I had never been exposed to doing impressions. Uh -huh. but then, then at about the age of six, I, I fell in love with magic. We were on a family, family trip, went into a magic store and um, uh, I learned how to uh, do the cups and balls routine. And so I showed it um, to anybody who would watch. Uh -huh. And both of my grandfathers had done a little bit of magic at one point or another. Um, my uh, my grandpa Muse, my mom's grandfather, had done a lot more because he was also a performer at heart. He was he he played in the band in in the Marines as well, um, and so he showed me how to how to how to palm a card and then pass it to another hand and have that pop up and oh, uh, some really wow. cool sleight of hand stuff. Um, and uh, my grandpa Cot would show me some different like he, one he would always teach and forget that he had already taught me was how you could uh squeeze a quarter and make it drip water because you would just take a little piece of uh yeah i'm, I'm gonna reveal a magic secret you take a little bit of water and, and you wet like a paper napkin and then you hold that behind the quarter and then you squeeze it and then the water comes out and people are like oh how'd you do that uh so i learned some tricks from both of my grandfathers and then i found out that you could uh get you didn't even have to go to a magic shop and plunk down money you can go to the the school library or the library in your town and go to 793.8 in the Dewey Decimal System, and you'd find all kinds of books about magic, card magic, coin magic. So I spent a lot of time studying that. So my first real audiences, besides just like, you know, amusing my parents, friends, and family, um, I would uh, I would do uh, talent shows in school and uh show and tell anytime there was show and tell it would have to be that i was showing the magic trick oh that's so yeah. cool so my first audiences were in school and i would also uh i had a gift for writing as well at a young age and so and and especially for reading the things that i had written out loud so a lot of times the teachers would have me 
um, stay after my my class and and read my story for the next class. Um, like you have to hear the story that Bill wrote and then hear how he reads it. And then I was always I always got selected by my teachers to uh, to read uh, passages. You know, you know, when, at a certain age they still have you read things aloud to make sure that you're all reading. Uh, and I would always get picked on to read this chapter or that chapter because they knew that I wouldn't be stumbling and that I'd already be familiar with a lot of the pronunciations of some of the historical figures. So early audiences were in school too. That's great. In grade school as well as high school. Yes. Uh, as early as third or fourth grade. Wow. That is so, I can just imagine being in show and tell with you and people are talking, <laughs> I got a new bunny and I got a, I got to go to the ice skating rink and here you are. See? Behold, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any favorite magicians now? Oh, uh, well, Penn and Teller have always been a huge yes, influence. Yes, yeah. They, they kind of, uh, they made magic relevant again, I think. Not, not that Doug Henning and a lot of other wonderful performers didn't as well, but I think Penn and Teller helped um, pave the way for magic as a, like, uh, as a post-ironic, sort of a thing both them and harry anderson i think yes um were were kind of making fun of magic while doing magic all at the same time and so they were they were my big magic influences growing up um uh nowadays um justin um i can't remember his real last name just incredible you know he had performed for many years uh he's also from st louis Wow. Um, where I'm from. And, um, you know, he, he, you know, went on Rachel Ray and then became, you know, world famous as a magician. Uh, I, I love his work. And, you know, I get to see a lot of wonderful acts at the Magic Castle where I still perform. Yes. I'll be performing in May. I was just going to ask you that. You're going to be at the Magic Castle in May? Yes. I oh, perform a yeah. two-man act with my friend Dave Cox, who's also a, a, a magician and improviser and musical improviser. We do a two-man act. We just performed at Illusions out here in Santa Monica as this act called The Charlatans. It's the charlatansmagic.com. And um, uh, we do a musical, magical oh. show. It's, it's, more, it's more magic than anything else. And then we, then we lean into improv for some of the segments of the show. And there's a big musical opener that's also musical improv at the beginning. So we love doing that show. Oh, I'm going to get on my invisible jet and come out and be in the invisible audience. Please do. Please do. We'd love to have I can, you. I'd love to be in LA sometime. There's such wonderful people like yourself and Jay and others that I just adore. So Jay told me that you were one of the people he performed most with, I guess, in the early years. Yeah. You're performing more with Dave now or, I mean, in terms of um, the length of time you played together. I perform with a bunch of different people now, uh, usually usually in duos or trios, uh, just to keep things simple, because once you try to coordinate seven to eight people on anything other than online, it's very difficult to get people to show up somewhere in person lately. Um, so right now I'm doing a musical act with Lisa Fredrickson, uh, who has oh. worked at Impro Theater for many years, but we both know each other from IO West, where she was part of uh, Opening Night, the improvised musical. We were both doing that around the same time. And um, <clears throat> um, also working with Eric Hoffman that I know from Chicago. Eric did a lot of stuff at the Annoyance Theater, and he was a 
later on went to work for Mr. Show and um, uh, with Bob and David and the, the movie Girlfriend's Day. And he currently has a graphic novel uh, about his um, spy character, Guy Suave, <laughs> called I Am Become Murder. And, uh, and he, ha he has some character in, in that as well that, that he uses my image to be a character for one of the villains. And that's fun. So I do a lot of, a lot of improv and sketch with a bunch of different people. Uh, usually, like I said, in duos and trios, but Jay and I have worked together the longest, definitely uh, of improv than anybody that I've worked with because we were both working at comedy sports in Chicago and um, we spent so much time off stage improvising. We would stay in character and riff. And I'm, I'm really not the sort of guy who's always like, always on. I'm not that guy. People see me at parties and find me to be pretty shy and reserved. But um, Jay, uh, Jay and I, people would say, get a room, you guys, you know. <laughs> You know, if we were done with the show, and we'd still be doing yeah. rap or musical improv, or we'd stay in characters. We had this dream a long time ago about renting a cabin and spending the whole weekend in character and inviting people who would swear to only be there and not break character the whole weekend long. We still have never done that. I would lay money on the fact that I bet Jay has done that at some point in his life by now. Yeah, no, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> so we did one of the very, very earliest um, two-man long-form shows, which was Motherless Stage Whores. Uh, and we did a pretty long run of that in Chicago. And then later, when Jay moved out here, we started doing it under the name Zero Hour, just because Facebook wouldn't let us call our group Motherless Stage Whores. Uh, because whore apparently is a bad word, even when we're calling ourselves the whores. Right. Um, and I understand why it would be unacceptable, you know, in the wrong hands. But our hands are the most loving and tender. I know they are. I'm thinking about Carlin's five words, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. We would yeah. never call an improv group any of those. So anyway, um, so we started doing zero hour and we, we kind of um, – uh, Don Hall directed us when, in Chicago when we did um, um, Motherless Stage Horse. And then out here we were like, you know, we really need um, we really need some direction on this. We can't just be, you know, we do have a lot of experience, but we need an outside eye. We want this to be a quality product. So we started working with Jeff Michalski, who's uh, a genius. Yes. And has been an influence to us and an influence to the people who influence us. You know, not only has Jeff been a wonderful mentor for both of us improvisationally as performers and teachers, um, you know, he was, he's a teacher that Stephen Colbert is often quoted. And Stephen was one of my first teachers. Wow. So, um, was, was that Chicago Northwest or uh, Chicago Second City? Um for uh, oh, I was I was training at, at Second City, the Second City Conservatory in Chicago. Yeah, okay. uh, I know Jay did did performed Waka Malaka at Northwest, but he also did the training center in in Chicago right. proper as well. Right, because uh, that's where that's where Jay and I also met because we were going through the we were going through the conservatory at about the same time. I think he was he started it maybe a year before I did or so, uh, even though he was younger than myself. Um, I thought he was much older. He looks older. Well, he's he's got more hair, so his gray shows more. I <laughs> shaved my head, so I look like I look like a scrapping young. 
Old man. Uh, <laughs> looking at my hair, I think I need to give it another cut soon. Can we go back in time a little bit? You know, <laughs> I would always prefer to do that, except okay. for except for uh, talking to a lot of people who say, from a spiritual and, and psychological point of view, it's best not to go to the past too much. Well. I don't care. I'm going back there. I'll um, go there with you. I'll go where, okay. wherever you want to go, Margo. Just take my hand and lead me there. Oh, so, so you're perform. You're already doing plays in high school, right? And yes, yes. Do you Mostly remember musical comedies? Can you remember one of your first shows that in high school or the want first one? The first play that I ever did outside of high school, well, I was even younger. Um, I think I was in fifth grade, and we did a play called The Pale Pink Dragon. And that was also a musical. Um, then when we moved to Pennsylvania, where I was telling you about, yeah. we did, we did um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, since I was one of the only kids in that region who could do a Yiddish accent, uh, I, was, I was asked to be one of the old men as well as I was originally cast because the sons, the sons, tradition, they needed younger kids to be the sons. So I got in the cast that way, but you know, in, in the end, um, you know, I'm I can't remember the character's name, but you know, and where can I go with a wife, her parents, and three children? You know, and they were like, okay, yes, you're one of the old men too. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, so I did that, and then I did a community theater production called Forty Five Minutes from Broadway, which was a collection of George M. Cohan songs. Then I started. Wow. High school. Um, so in high school, freshman year, I did, uh, Brigadoon. Yes. I was, um, um, uh, Archie Beaton, the, the father of Harry Beaton, the guy that gets killed. Um, and then we did, uh, how to succeed in business. I played JB Bigley. Yes. <laughs> uh, junior year, we did a, uh, a play called Sugar, which is the musical version of, um, uh, Some Like It Hot. And now Some Like It Hot has become a musical with the name Some Like It Hot. Yes. And I actually yes. know, I actually know Mark Shaman who wrote the, the music for that and, um, and put that wonderful show together. And I'm going to be seeing that on Broadway in just a few weeks. Oh, beautiful. Awesome. Well, if, if Mark should be around, he doesn't show up every night, of course, but if he should be around and if you should see him, tell him I said hi. Okay. I'm, I'm good friends with him and his, and his husband, Lou, who are just wonderful. They're both wonderful people. So we digressed uh, a moment, but we're, we're high school, then we're yes. going to do college. So then, yeah. so then high school, senior year, uh, I did uh, My Fair Lady, and I was Colonel Pickering. Yes. <laughs> uh, which my, father, my father played Colonel Pickering when he was in high school, but oh. it was seminary. So they did an all-male production, and they called it Jamie. Uh, they, they did that with a lot of productions. They would do like all male versions of musicals. Like they did, uh, the music man and made it a, an all male production. And may, maybe some of the, in some cases they were in drag too, whatever. Yeah. Uh, they were all training to be in drag anyway. They were all going to wear one of them down <laughs> for a living. Um, but so my dad had auditioned to be in something called the Muni Opera in St. Louis. We have this beautiful amphitheater that has been around since the, um, the 1908 World Fair. Wow. Um, and um, that's, the one Judy, that's the one Judy Garland sang about. Yep. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at the fair. St. Louis has not moved forward in time since 1908. Honestly, <laughs> I swear to God. Um, 
We're we're always so proud about that. Was the fact where the uh, that was the place where the hot dog was kind of popularized, where the ice cream cone was popularized. They 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 ran out of ice cream cups or something like that, and some waffle maker decided to make a cone, and so they started selling waffle cones, and that's wow. that's how the ice cream cone came to be. Um, uh, so many park and pavilion buildings that were built for the World's Fair are still around to this very day. Uh, all all of um, uh, all of um, um, the uh, uh, why am I forgetting the name of St. Louis Park? Oh my God! Not Grant Park. There is a Grant Park, but hold on a second. I'm a, I'm gonna feel stupid until I look this up. Forest Park. I didn't even need to look it up. It came to me. So in Forest Park in St. Louis, a lot of the buildings that are still there, the art museums and things like that, are are remnants of the World's Fair. And in Tower Grove Park, there's these different pavilions that represent different countries. And still to this day, they have summer festivals where they'll have, you know, under the pagoda, they'll have, you know, um, Chinese uh, booth. And then like, you know, uh, the Turkish pagoda, Turkish food, or Middle Eastern fare, and um, very multi multicultural. That's also where where they have the Pride Fest in St. Louis and Tower Grove Park. Um, but uh, so Forest Park, they had the the Muni Opera, and my dad auditioned to be part of the chorus of the Muni Opera, and he got the part. And um, that meant that would have meant that he would have been in the chorus of every major production that came through there then. And that, back then they used to do like whatever was touring on Broadway, it would come to, um, to the Muni. And uh, my dad uh, was a seminarian at the time, and he was told it was unbecoming of a seminarian to be in the chorus of a paid uh, uh, musical theater production. Uh. They, uh, they ousted him, uh, or, they, or they didn't let him take the job. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why he was so supportive of what I did. Cause in a way we, he, he felt a calling to do that as well as, yes. uh, as well as, you know, um, you know, his spiritual calling. And uh, so he had done Colonel Pickering as well. So when he saw me on the stage as Colonel Pickering, my senior year, he was incredibly proud and, and saw that as kind of like passing of the torch. Oh, that's so beautiful. So you decided to go to college as, Yes. Very smart people do. And did you know what you wanted to do in college? Absolutely. It's why I was able to go there. Um, so my freshman year, I went to the University of Missouri-St. Louis on a full scholarship for uh, for theater and academics. And um, then they were getting rid of their theater department. Um, now there's there's a wonderful um, you know theater department. They're one of the best theaters in St. Louis as at University of Missouri-St. Louis. But um, they were closing it down. Uh, and so there was like, well, why am I even going here? Uh, and also I was losing my, um, my funding. So, uh, a lot of the scholarships were just for that first year. And I didn't know that. And, uh, cause you know, when you're a kid, you don't do a lot of research of things that are handed your way. And so I, I had done a community theater production of little shop of horrors, which was directed by Judy Rethwish, who was John Goodman's high school, uh, acting teacher. Oh my gosh. And um, he later went on to um, what at the time was Southwest Missouri State University, which has a wonderful, thriving uh, improv, not improv program, but I'm sure they, yeah, they, have improv, they do have improv there too, but they had a wonderful uh, tent theater program during the summer as well and a great theater program all year long. 
So she tried to get me in there, but um, somehow we missed the um, the application for the uh, scholarship. And so she said, well, I'll tell you what, me and my husband both went to this small school in the middle of Missouri called Central Methodist. And um, uh, if you'd be interested, he can get you enough funding so that you can go there this year. Uh, and, um, you know, you'll there's there's not a big theater program there. You'll thrive and you'll get a lot of experience, a lot of stage time. Uh, and it'll be a very supportive community. So she got me in at Central and her husband Braxton, who recently passed away, um, God rest his soul. Um, they got me into uh, Central. And uh, after my first year there, I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm loving it here. I got, I got to be the lead my sophomore year, which was technically my freshman year because nobody knew me. It was my first year there. I auditioned for the part of Noah in the Richard Rogers musical Two by Two, which is about uh, the Noah's Ark. Um, and not all the musicals were biblically based at Central. At first, I was like, is this going to be a bunch of musicals that are about from the Bible? But anyway, uh, but, but, but my sophomore year performance, I wound up as the lead, the title character uh, in, in Two by Two. And um, so I was like, if I went to any other college at this point, um, I would, any other point, I would have to, um, I'm sorry, I'm ADHD. So the chat that you sent me completely distracted me. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, just say it out loud and we'll take it and you can edit it out. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's do part two after a short break. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. So you want me to finish that story or take a break now? No, take it. Finish the story. We got. I want to do a few more minutes here, and then okay. we'll take a short break because there's just way too much I want to ask you and talk about. Absolutely, yeah. Chop this up however you need to, but yeah, just go ahead and send that. I'm, I am ADHD, so when I saw that pop up, all of a sudden I was like, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Um, but getting that that role and going to that is yeah. a smaller college, the Methodist College. Yeah, I realized. I realized that if I was going to be transferring to any other college, especially one that had such a uh, uh, competitive theater program, that I would probably spend the next two years just building sets and maybe doing a walk-on, you know. But here I was doing leads in musical comedies. Yes, yes. So I decided I was going to stay at Central. Stayed there, graduated from Central on time. Most people that went to Central went there for five years anyway because there were so <laughs> many extracurriculars and so few students that you would usually spend a lot of your, you know, you, you would take a light student load and get a lot of, you know, you'd get a very broad experience. It was great wow. in terms of that. Um, but despite the fact that I transferred, I graduated in four years with only one class in summer school. And uh, I spent a year in oh, St. Louis. Were you, were you performing during the summer breaks? Were you in, in, you know, community theater or anything during summer breaks? Every summer break. I would do something with um, Afton Center Stage, uh, which is the community theater that I met uh, Judy Rethwish at. Um, and then later it became um, Center Stage. And then later um, the musical director, Scott Miller, uh, went on to form um, a company called New Line. And I think I did one production with New Line. Uh, but the rest of them were with Center Stage. That's where we did... Um, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Hello Dolly, and uh, Little Shop of Horrors, where I played Mr. Mushnick. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. I love that. That's so great. And so 
Did you have a plan when you got out of college? You know, I became a bartender. That was my plan. Um, but did you have a plan of what you wanted to do and were offers coming in already? <laughs> I was a bank teller. That's how I worked my way through my last year or so of college. Wow. That's a and great character. Yeah. Uh, it was it was such a great thing for character study. I got to interact with so many different kinds of people from so many different walks of life. And also, I would get these ideas um, while I was working and then write write the ideas on the back of deposit slips because there was always pen and paper right in front of me. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I still have so many slips of paper that I've never done anything with from those days. Well, and either I have the slips of paper or I've entered them into a computer somewhere along the line. Well, and then, and that's how I decided to, so I did improv for my first year out of college with a group called The Network. And um, uh, Brandon Johnson, who still does improv out here in Los Angeles and does stuff on Funny or Die and has been on Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, brilliant performer. He was in that group with me. Uh, Dan Gordon, who, uh, who uh, does like transformational uh, training and business training for people. And... Um, a couple of my friends went on to do a, um, a show called Brand X. Uh, my friend Stephanie is still doing musicals with New Line and other shows back there. But uh, one of the members of the troupe that was kind of like the, the our, our director and head writer, Tom Johnson, later went on to be one of the original writers of The Daily Show. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And he and I are still friends out here in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, between Brandon Johnson, Tom Johnson... And myself, three three members of the same St. Louis improv troupe are still out here working in Hollywood to this day. Talk about serendipity and yeah. synchronicity. I always think about how the Beatles, you know, how they all happened to get together. It was just incredible. And there's a lot of yeah. synchronicity in your life. It's that's fabulous. So so you're out there, you're doing what kind of when you were learning improv, you were learning it in high school as well or college. My experiences with improv were this. Um, prior prior to working with the network, I had um, Judy Rethwish always felt that improv should be part of the rehearsal prog process. Mm -hmm. So she would often do these, these improv warm-ups where we would answer questions from other cast members in character. So um, it allowed us to do some character development that maybe we hadn't even thought of. So we kind of just sit in a in a office chair and rotate around a circle, you know, 360 degrees from cast member to cast member, and we'd have to rapid fire answer questions from them as if it was knowledge that we had had with us all along. Right. Oh, I love that. Sometimes it would be ridiculous. Sometimes it would be dead on. Um, so I, I learned some of my earliest improv doing just doing that, yeah. and then we did a show my senior year in college called Scapino, uh, which was um, loosely based on a lot of archetypes from Commedia. So we, we were encouraged to improvise and play around with the audience. Because as a matter of fact, the audience was on the stage in that show. The, the, where, where normally the seats were, were, were covered with these blue sheets and stuff like that. So that was the C. And then this was like, um, kind of like, a little cafe and a house here and a cafe there and a balcony window and a dock and like 
Some of some of the audience were seated inside of a small boat that was supposed to be in the dock. Other <laughs> audiences were seated up on a balcony or wow. um, at the other table at a cafe. And so it was kind of immersive comedia uh, was a production in my my senior year. Had I had I felt more confident with improv, I think I would have improvised even more so and played around with um, with the other with the audience members and the cast members just a little bit more. But um, it was fun enough uh, in that respect. And then when I started doing improv with with the members of the network, uh, it was just like whatever improv exercises they had absorbed because some of them had studied. My one of my best friends, Ray Brewer, uh, had studied at, at Second City at the Players Workshop, as had Tom Johnson, um, and uh, so they brought that knowledge back to St. Louis and started teaching us the exercises that they learned. We would watch whose line is it anyway and and try to you know a lot of what we were doing was like making things look like improv that were actually kind of very structured and then we would change up a word here and there about what we would do or you know it would be very it would be very sticky and a very bit oriented but we still <laughs> did some some genuine improv but the the real genuine improv that we did was usually in rehearsal while we were working out the beats of us of a scripted scene Right. So, so you're in St. Louis and you have a great group you're working with. What made you leave? I knew that I wanted to study at Second City. I had wanted to do that. You know, I told you my dad wrote industrials and he would often do shows that were in Chicago and he would insist that they use Second City. He was like, you, you have to use Second City performance. If you're doing it in Chicago, you're wasting everyone's time if you're not using a Second City improviser. So he was aware of Second City long before uh, a lot of other people were. Uh, a matter of fact, you know, um, before before the Compass became the Second City, they spent several years in Chicago, uh, in St. Louis rather, uh, in Gaslight Square. Uh, that was where Del Close came to yes. uh, the Compass. Yeah. Stiller and Mira were in St. Louis with the Compass. Um, uh, so many, you know, so many of the greats uh, started there in St. Louis, and there was like there was a huge, you know. Um, beat scene that was going on there in the late 50s early 60s in st louis that that rivaled what was going on in greenwich village uh despite that it was in the middle of the the midwest and such a conservative uh place yeah yeah so, um so my father was was aware of second city even then he never saw them perform he was probably forbidden to as a seminarian back then right. but uh, he he was very well aware of second city and what they did and who they were um and so he he let us stay up for sctv and saturday night live and yeah, firmwood yeah. tonight and all these shows uh, that were improv yes. based and um so it was i i think i can pretty much blame my dad for second city uh oh. for me being involved in second city so uh and then also you know the the talent coordinator and the manager of catch a rising star where we were doing the network um tom clyde and todd grove said, man, you got to get out of here. You got to go to Chicago. If you know, you got to take what you're doing here and take it to Chicago. And so eventually I did. I, I, I went to a local, you know, back then there was no internet yet. So I went to a, 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 a newsstand, got a copy of the Chicago Tribune, mailed off my resume to several banks and got a job working at Boulevard Bank in the basement of the uh, Wrigley building. 
Oh my gosh. This is a good time to end part one. We'll take a little break and come back from part two because I am having the best time ever. Okay. We'll take a little break and be back, folks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.